I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So yeah, I mean, this is this is kind. Of, this is not really what I talk about um, when I do my futurism and, and stuff. But like, this is this is the progenitor of a lot of the stuff that I saw that that really blew my mind wide open and and gave me the potential to do what I'm doing. And we can get into that as we, as we talk about this. Yeah, yeah, but. totally. I I mean, I so I, let let's let's. Let's start here because cool. uh, I'm sure there's I'm sure there's somebody out there who's listening. Uh, I, I guess we'll give like a, a quick little introduction here. We are yeah. sitting down with uh, Nicholas Babington, Nick, um, who is a futurist and and public speaker. Um, I guarantee you there's at least one person out there who heard me just say that and go, what the fuck is a futurist? So, uh, <laughs> Nick, why don't you just give me a quick little rundown on uh, on the the work of a futurist? Yeah, so so many years ago, I sort of st- I, I I got really really obsessed with like the future and technology and whatever. At the age of eight, I read a book called "The Osborne Book of the Future," and uh, my 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 dad bought it for me, and it sort of really opened my eyes about what what the future could be. Anyway, you sort of you know meander through life. I got, I got a bachelor of science in applied psychology, computing. I thought things like chaos theory and artificial intelligence and robotics and organizational psychology would be a big deal at some point in the future as the mid nineties. And boy, was I right. And, <laughs> and, and about, and about eight years ago, I, I, a really good friend of mine who now sort of heads up a very serious practice at a very large tech company in Silicon Valley on, on the future of computing. Uh, he, me, me and him were sort of working together and we'd known each other since kid, we were kids and we'd reconvened in Vancouver. Vancouver in Canada and we put together a conference called Cyborg Camp and uh, 120, 130 people flew from all over the world to talk about the intersection of humanity and technology Mm. and this was early days and uh, someone started calling me a futurist and really what futurists are, they they help, you know, companies look out 5, 10, 20 plus 100, 100, 200 years into the future to try and imagine what those futures can be so you can bring you know, so some of the ideas that the are presented by the narratives you create back to today so you can do strategic planning. Mm. So, for example, uh, one particular scenario that's been examined for the last 100 years has been pandemics. Uh, but no one really listened to the futurists in the scenario work that they were doing too much. But the countries that, that, that had planned for it, since SARS and MERS and all the other stuff, mm. uh, were certainly prepared, right? So, so futurists just help people look around the corner and, and see what's coming. And, uh, and that's what I do. Um, the past year has certainly been interesting. I've worked with some of the biggest companies in the world. And uh, everything from transportation, farming, high technology, 
um, the Bank of Canada, a whole bunch of people to really sort of open their eyes to sort of uh, the geopolitical shifts, uh, population shifts, technological, cultural shifts, societal shifts, um, a whole bunch of different things across a a bunch of different industries. So futurists just help you look around the corner and see what's coming. And um, it's it's an extension of the strategic uh, technical practice that I did for over 20, 20 years. So so yeah, in short, that's what a futurist is. And uh, I, I, I always get this question. It's like, what is that? There's not a lot of people out there in organizations or, you know, a, away from maybe sort of the big keynote stages that you that you normally see like futurists. But I'm a guy with tons of practical experience that really, I, I work with boards of directors, executives, uh, chairman of the boards to, to really work out what's coming and to shape businesses for, you know, success really, mm, you know, in, yeah. in like 20 plus years. So uh, it's good. I, it I know like, that I know that we're going to go down a, a, a couple uh, different avenues here when it comes to uh, Nick's expertise as a futurist. But I, guys, we have to get the question out of the way right off the top. Yeah. Nick, are we living in a simulation? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever read the the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams? I have. Yeah, yeah. That's an easy one to get out of the yeah. way right off the bat, yeah. too, Brad. Right? So you know, it's the idea. Right by that. There's these two mice. That basically, uh, you know, were part of an intergalactic species that created the Earth. It was a massive simulation to find out the answer of life, the universe, and everything, which was forty-two. And then they had to work out what the what the original question really was. So, <laughs> are we living in a simulation? Come on, seriously! Like you've, you've been smoking too much Kush with, with Elon Musk, you know? Hey, man, don't yuck my yum. All right, I, I, I fully believe it. Uh, that might be the, uh, Nick, that might Nick, that might be the you. same joke that. Elon Elon Musk tells on Saturday Night Live on, on May 8th because he's going to host it. Do you know what? The simulation question is actually super interesting. If, if you start to uh, think about things like uh, meditation or psychedelic sh- shamanic journeying and Ooh. things like that, you know, it, there's a lot of discussion around complexity and chaos and interdimensionality and stuff like that. So it's super interesting from a philosophical a philosophical perspective to explore the idea of simulation. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, it, am I going to put like a thousand bucks that we are living on a, in a simulation? <laughs> it's like, you know, discuss, right? It, de- yeah, it, de- yeah. it depends what the uh, master system is. If you think about it from an architectural perspective, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about it as uh, the earth as an experiment, then sure, we're an epoch in that. But like, uh, yeah, it doesn't feel like it. Life feels quite real, you know? Yeah. I think it, so too. It feels like uh, when when you when you go through and you you give the Coles Nuts version of uh, of what a futurist is and what a futurist does. Yeah. Um. It um. It it sort of like reminds it sort of reminds me of like the way that my brain works when I when I don't have like a task to focus on like right. <laughs> just like the the like the thousand directions that you can go in when you think about the future and right. it seems like that would be very um it, like from a it seems like it would be it it it'd be very easy to like think about, but then very challenging to to um to like boil down into like some more concrete things that yeah uh, you know you, you know you could philosophize about about you know anything happening in the future, but like how do you how do you go about boiling down and separating the the the, the fact from the the fact from the fiction when it comes to looking out such a long period of time in the future. Yeah, it, it's pure speculation, right? So you, you have to use some deductive reasoning. You have to use some uh, summation. 
And, and you, you hit right on it. Yeah, there are thousands and thousands, if not millions of futures. Every single individual in the world has its own version of the future. So if you think about that and you start uh, designing these futures, you have to think about plurality. You have to think about BIPOC communities. You have to think about um, people of different ages and different sexes, different you know genders, the, the, the whole thing, right? And you have to really sort of put that into a melting pot and bring a lot of people together to, to really explore that. Um, there's no future. There's only futures. So when you do come back to today, you literally have to then abstract and aggregate that into something that works for everyone in a way, right? Um, and and we're, we're sort of 280 years since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And that's a, uh, it's a complex system that's been created for companies to thrive and for individuals to serve. So we, we're kind of uh, what we call, we, we, we've been colonized by technology and colonized by the by, by by, by this industrial complex to, to live and work in a certain way. I mean, this podcast is a particular example of that. I've got a webcam, I've got a computer, I've got an iPod as a, uh, as a second uh, backup for, for audio, I've got a keyboard and whatever. Someone decided to have a QWERTY keyboard and someone decided to have the form function of everything around us and told us that, hey, this is what you can buy, there's no other choice, right? Now, what we do as futurists is try and blow that idea apart and say, you've got infinite choices, so what's mm. it going to be and what works for you? And if you've got 100 people in a room, and I've, I've, done, I've done work with very, very large groups of people in the United Nations and other people, and it's like you can have 100 different answers and all of it's valid. But if you come back and you say, okay, we need something to capture our voices, we need something to capture our images – that abstract is good enough to be able to make some decisions today and then you've got restrictions of technology and whatever. Mm. So, for example, you might be speculating about climate change and agriculture in the future. So you have to consider that there will be a more diverse set of agricultural principles in the people working in the fields. In fact, it won't all be in the fields. It will be in urban centres because the majority of the world is going to live in urban centres. In fact, when you look at Lagos, Nigeria in the year 2100, it's going to be 88.3 million people. So let's write stories about Lagos, Nigeria, right? Um, and then let's write stories about Toronto. And then let's write stories about Paris. And then let's write stories about Tokyo. You know, and, and let's just talk about everyone and everything. So that's the work. And um, it's starting to gain a lot of popularity just because it, it shakes off the restrictive nature of strategic planning and idealism that, that sort of um, pushed onto us today. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Is it also is it also a ma a matter of how how with the advent of the internet especially how quickly the future is coming at us? Yeah, like, you, like yeah. it's coming at us at a different rate Ooh. than it was in the in nine in nineteen hundred as opposed to two thousand. 
it's coming well, like the future is, is moving towards us faster or, or is that a misconception that we have because of how rapidly technology no, is advancing uh, it's not a misconception if you think about industrial revolutions um there's three dimensions there's there's uh, communications, transportation, and energy. And if you look at those three and the innovations in there, um, they start to, to multiply and exponential growth happens from there. So uh, I, I show a picture of New York City in, in the year 1904, and it's literally all horse-drawn carriages and one car. And then like 14, 15 years later, there's no horses, right? There's just cars. Um, so it is happening quickly. You know, if you think about it, in 1968, uh, Douglas Engelbart showed us the world's first uh, personal computer. And now everyone's got um, the equivalent of supercomputers in their pockets, or certainly supercomputers from what people would have considered yeah. in the late 60s, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it is happening quickly. But, but you know, pe people are pretty impatient. It's not happening fast enough. We saw this in the past year with vaccines. Right, <laughs> you, know, yeah. those, you know, that's the fastest that vaccines have sort of hit the Ooh, shelves. Yeah, um, four uh, times in, faster, yeah. <laughs> right, in, in, in recent memories, right? And, you know, it's not perfect and we'll get there and it's all yeah. good. Um, but, like, yeah, is it is it coming out as quicker? It just feels that way. You know, when you've got over 7 billion people on the planet and everyone sort of plugged in uh, technologically and everyone sort of adheres into systems and shares ideas and communication runs faster than ever before you can really build on top of that and that's where the exponential uh, growth and change re really comes from it's it's hugely dangerous because when you've got companies like alphabet amazon facebook whoever else tencent in china uh with with the coffers that they've got uh you know the money that they can invest they're always going to be like 10 miles ahead of any government, right? Yeah. So, so what do you do? How do you stay, you know, how do you keep up and how do you, you know, develop policy? How do you work with them? Uh, how do you ensure that they've got every opportunity to do the best, right? Mm. But, um, yeah. So what, is, what is it like? Why do we romanticize the future so much when a lot of us won't be around? Uh, almost all of us won't be around to experience it. <laughs> I, I think some people romanticize the future. I think some people are downright fearful of it as well, right? Yeah. Totally. So, so I always say that nostalgia is the biggest enemy of, of, of a futurist, right? Uh, when you go back and you think about the good old days, right? So <laughs> I've had this experience over the last few years. I fly into Alberta, right? And I talk about the end of oil. I go to Grand Prairie, Alberta, and this is a true story. I went to a conference up there th uh, three, four years ago, and I opened the conference and talk about the end of oil. Oh, and this is, this is just not too far from the oil fields. Half the people in the room have made a ton of money from oil. Their, their, their fathers and mothers have worked in there. Their, grand, their grandfathers have worked in there, et cetera, et cetera. The good, the good times, the good old days, the nostalgic good days, they, they must still be here for Canada, right? And you still hear a lot of that narrative. And after the talk, uh, this woman from... Uh, uh, one of the associations that support oil and gas, I'll, I'll, I'll leave them nameless, threw, threw uh, pamphlets at me, said, you need to look at the innovations in the oil fields. And it's like, no, because <laughs> that's, not, that's not the future, right? Mm. Um, so so they, they, people like that do not have you know, a romantic idea of the future. They just have got the idea of the future that they're not going to do what their parents did and they're not going to be able to earn money and whatever. They don't see the, 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 the benefits. Mm. And then some people do romanticize. It's like, it's going to be better than today. You've got to have hope. You've got to live on, right? So, mm. uh, you know, I've got a nine-month-old kid 
So it's my first kid. The idea of fatherhood uh, was sort of alien to me, and it's very real and visceral. Uh, the fact that my kid's going to be 80 years old um, in sort of the year t- um, 2100 is pretty wild, and it roots Ooh. me in, in how I think about you know where we're going and the impact of the world. And it's not even his future that, that's really to worry about. We're going to look forward multiple generations, 10, 12 <laughs> uh, generations into the future. This is like indigenous thinking, First Nations thinking, to look forward like seven to 12 generations and wonder what our children are going to inherit, right? So um, there's, there's a lot of different things that we can learn. Um, you know, I, I don't want to come across sounding like an academic or anything. <laughs> that, you know, I'm not an academic, but I do tons of reading and... As I, as I go even further into this field, do more writing, more speaking, more research, speak to people like you, I start to realize that, you know, that, that sort of, you know, the future where we're plugged into technology and life is good and we've, we've all got abundance and, and, you know, everyone's well, isn't necessarily a true representation of the complexity of the human condition, right? Mm. Mm. So, so out of all the work that you do, Nick, what... what- you know, one of the reasons we we came together to talk today is about the um, the the research that is going into this idea of, of intergenerational trauma. Yeah, um, which is something that's come up on the show uh, several times over the last like couple of months, and it's it's a, a concept that we are we're still trying to like grasp our our understanding of what that means. Yeah how it can be um, um, managed and dealt with in, in the future. Um, can, you, can you speak a little bit uh, about um, what, you, what you have heard, what you know about um, uh, epigenetics and, and how intergenerational trauma uh, works and, and affects people's lives? Yeah, so, so let's go through some definitions, right? So, uh, into, uh, you know, multi-generational trauma is the idea that my parents and their parents and their parents and their parents, you know, uh, everyone passes down memories and the memories are stored at a cellular level, right? And uh, and you can, you can literally br- bring on some kind of inherited memory that affects you physically or psychologically as well. And epigenetics is is ultimately the field that studies, you know, these heritable changes uh, caused by the activation and deactivation of genes. Uh, and any any underlying DNA in the organism. So if if you're if you're watching this uh, or listening to this, go go and go and bring up someone called Dr. Bruce Lipton uh, on YouTube. He does a much more fantastic job of explaining all of this than me. But it's the idea that me, uh, as Nick Badminton, can store memories from my childhood, but also from my parents' uh, childhoods and upbringings and their parents' childhoods and upbringings, and that will have an adverse effect uh, on who I am. So what we have to do is start to think about how we can disrupt um, those signals in our own in our own DNA and in, in our own uh, operation and our own psyche. And uh, I've got a great deal of experience with this because I've, and I constantly work at it, um, but I've, I've undergone a number of different techniques and worked super hard to really push the boundaries of myself to, to heal 
A bunch of trauma. Everyone's got trauma. It's probably the number one biggest cause of every single negative situation in the world. Whether it's war, fighting on the streets, arguments at home, you know, self-loathing when you're alone, alcoholism, addiction of any kinds or whatever. It all comes back to, you know, the effects at a very deep personal level, right? Mm. So, I mean, that that's what it is. I mean, very, very loosely, it's... It's, it's how we're put together, but how we're put together, not just physically, but emotionally and uh, psychologically, right? When, when, you say, when you say memories, like, are, do you mean memories, do you mean the, the, effect, the effect or the impact of a memory rather yeah. than the actual memory? It's like, as opposed to the ability to actually access memories from another person's life in the way that you can yeah. access a memory from your, you know, f- from your childhood, for example. It's a, it, it's, a, it's a bit of both, right? And you have to really work at it. So I work with people to help uncover, you know, memories that I have. I mean, so I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, a quick timeline. My parents were born at the end of the Second World War in the UK, right? And what we uncovered, the fact was the first five years of my parents' lives uh, were, were growing up in, 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 in a... In, in a scarcity, right? There were ration books. There wasn't the food. There wasn't the ability. People in the UK, a lot of them grew their own food. My parents still grow their own food. Uh, my parents have still got a narrative <laughs> around not having enough or, you know, be, being being super frugal and, and whatever. And then, you know, to myself, my sister passed away when I was eight years old. And I can recall the day that that happened from the age of eight. Exactly what happened for two days when all of that went down and the memory of my mother and my father and the subsequent two years and all of that changed my personality completely. And I didn't deal with that until I was 40. <laughs> so and I'm 40, 48 now. So, um, so and that that deeply affected my life. You know the you know the anxiety, the stress, the you know the the lack of belonging, the fact that I thought that I was going to die at the same age as my sister, a whole bunch of different stuff. Right. right. Mm. So so this is it. We we store this, but you know the good thing is you can disrupt it. Um, the the bad thing is that we're very good at covering everything up and saying, you know what, I'm okay. Just leave me alone. It's good. Um, and then you'll go home and drink a bottle of wine and, I don't know, watch TV and fall asleep on the couch and that's a coping mechanism or or whatever, right? Or you know, over-reliance and co- codependency <laughs> on, a, you know, on, on someone you're in a relationship with or you might be eating too much or you might be addicted to something or, or whatever, right? And we can mm-hmm. see it around. And once you have this idea of post-generational trauma, you can you can look out on the street. It's like okay, you know, was that person chain smoking, or you know, you know, why, why why are those two people having an argument? Why are those two people so happy, right? Because mm-hmm. there can be really positive moments in everything as well as negative ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are what are some of the techniques that uh, I mean, like personally yourself that you yeah. that you have used to try to work through your own uh, your own past traumas. So, uh, so around the age of forty, I, I'd, I'd been going to see a therapist in uh, in Vancouver for three years, and uh, I'd had a marriage. Uh, I'd moved to to Canada with with my uh, ex wife, and uh, obviously we were together at the time, and we broke up. And then it took three years with my therapist to even talk about my childhood, <laughs> and then she was like, "Ah, there it is. You know, you, you've never told me about. I didn't, you know." 
All of my friends were surprised when I told them that, that I used to have a sister after all of this uh, transpired. Because all of this stuff is, is dug down. They never chatted to my parents about it. Never really right. gone into stuff. Mm. You know, never shared with my mother that I used to go and visit my sister's grave whenever I go home to the UK. I uh, did that for the first time when I was 41, right? <laughs> it's kind of a trip. Mm. Yeah. Um, because you're, like, you're shocked, shamed, embarrassed, whatever. Anyway, uh, I sat down, my, my therapist Lorraine, amazing, amazing person that's helped a lot of my friends as well, um, did something called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it was, uh, you could close your eyes and uh, you, 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 you regress back to remember the moment of, of trauma. So the, you know, the day that my, my sister <laughs> passed away or the day we found out. And um, sometimes they use light and sometimes they do tapping. And what it is, it, um, they don't know exactly how it works, but um, it, it triggers uh, the memory centers of the brain to tap into these memories. And what happens is over a period of time and a number of sessions, they reconfigure how that memory is stored and what you associate that with. And after about four sessions, uh, and some people go through months and months and months and dozens of sessions, right? Um, we, we moved from the moment of trauma to a moment where the therapist said, okay, let's, let's replace that, 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 that trauma of loss with the idea that you can do anything. And after an hour, I opened my eyes and the world changed entirely. Wow. Mm. I, I feel like, I feel, is it just me or I had a conversation about EMDR recently, definitely with my partner, but we talked about it. We I, talked talked about about it I've, I've done it guys. Yeah. I did it in therapy as well. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You had said you'd done it. Right. Yeah, it's, it's so, it's, it's such cool. a, it's really cool. What a fucking trippy it's tool, crazy. you know? <laughs> yeah. Like that, that, and, and, and was this something that like Nick, that you immediately, immediately kind of, felt the benefits of, you know, like, or was this, or was this something that it, it took a few attempts, uh, you know, a little bit of reflection, uh, some, some time to process, or was it, was it kind of one of those things where you went in, you did it the next day, you're, you're kind of like, holy, what the fuck just happened? Like, that yeah. Was so it's kind of interesting, right? So whenever you do anything, you know, um, you know, with meditation and so some people look to psychedelics and shamanic journeying and, mm. and all these things, there's an integration, right? Mm. So, so uh, I remember it vividly. So I did this and I sat back in the chair and she said, you can do anything. And, and then I opened my eyes after it was 20 minutes of tapping. And this is hard work. This is your brain's going hell for leather. And I walked out onto the street and it was like the world was completely different. And I, I, I went back to my apartment. I sat there. I was like, this is wild, absolutely wild. And you do some journaling. Um, you reflect on what you've been doing and your behaviors and, and whatever. And yeah, it, it sort of beds in. And then what it did for me was it just lit a fire under me. And so like, Ooh. if this is what you can do um, with, with the brain, like how many different ways can I like, you know, sort of, really you know blow my mind even wider open right and suddenly i went from this narrative of of uh not, not being good enough right to a narrative of i can do anything and not in an arrogant way just in a like you know there's nothing stopping me and honestly the last eight years of my life and my career have just been in, in incredible and uh I'm, I'm in a loving relationship with my partner i got a nine-month-old kid um my business is off the chain um i i think it's successful because every day i have a huge amount of fun and i work with incredibly um 
in incredibly transformational and impactful people and organizations, okay. right? Mm. And um, before, I was just subsistence living, <laughs> you know, yeah, just right, like, right. you know, I'll take the job, I'll, you know, right. I'll get angry, I'll, you know, I'll go out the weekends because my job's kind of not that great and maybe then I'll deal with that that way and maybe I'll date some people because you know, maybe I'll find someone I want to be Ooh. with. And obviously you don't because you're not looking for the right kinds of uh, attributes and traits and right. whatever anyway. But like, uh, yeah, it, it is super interesting. And, uh, you know, the integration and bringing that back down to earth it is super important. And you have to be really, you know, really careful about how you reintroduce, in, introduce yourself back into the world because you're still surrounded by the people that, <laughs> that were surrounding you before you went into that session, right? Mm. So you have to kind of pick and choose the, you know, the people that are good for you, not good for you, and whatever as well. What did, what did that look like? Like, uh, kind of sort sort of being, uh, for lack of a better phrase, being born again, like into this this like coming out as this like new you, and then and then you're like you said, you're associated with the same group of people, yeah. and you know they like I I find that oftentimes you know. Uh, so I went and did my yoga teacher training. I'm kind of like thinking back to that experience in my life when I yeah. went off to India for six weeks, had this transformational experience, come back to my same group of friends. I was living in Dubai at the time, which is like the opposite of like a yogic experience. It's like super materialistic and um, yeah. like like going out for beers with my friends that I play uh, soccer with every night. And, and, uh, and so I come back into that environment. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to drink now. And they're like, what the fuck? Like, who are you? I, this, this new like Yogi bra, they were calling me Yogi bra forever. Yeah. But, uh, but, but yeah, I remember that being like a weird experience trying to embrace this new me that like felt good and that, that I wanted to be, I was like, this is who I am. Right. But I feel like the guys that I was associated with before maybe didn't really appreciate that as much. Did you? Did you have an experience like that? Uh, yeah, in a, in a way. Um, but a question for you, Brian. Like, did you find that over time, after you explained things to them, they saw you operating in a in a new way? Did you see some of them come with you on that journey? He, yeah, you know, I didn't stick around in Dubai for long enough to right. really like have that that sit in, and and uh, I feel like it is a very like transitional place yeah. for people like people come and go a lot but i feel like i ended up sort of spending more time around the people that definitely embodied the sort of new set of values that um i saw in myself yeah you know the the, the adage of you know you you you're you're the product of the five people you hang around with the most or they feed you is completely completely true oh, yeah. if you think about that like epigenetically that's that's the energy that you're soaking in mm -hmm. right um you know, but then, you know, you still got family members that are challenged. So you have to have patience <laughs> with them. And you've got some friends that you love deeply, but they're challenging as well. So, you you know, so, so this is when you have to click on the compassion, right? Mm. Um, and then, you know, and then sometimes you just go even further and deeper into the experience. And then your friends, friends have to be really patient with you as you like, you know, your mind's blown every couple of Ooh. weeks, right? You know, what? I would, I would say, um, Taylor kind of, Taylor, um, as, as, uh, as much as I hate to admit, uh, Taylor is being somewhat of a role model for me in my life. Taylor <laughs> went and did his yoga teacher training first. It's actually where, uh, he and Jeremy met. Right. And, uh, and when he went and did that, he went through a really, um, um, pivotal transformation in his life. And I'd say it brought along a lot of, uh, the friends uh, yeah. and people in our friend group. Yeah, very yeah. much so.
Yeah. You have to integrate. You have to bring it back together, and you have to understand what it means for for the world. I mean, there are some people that, that that wander off and they try psychedelics and shamanic journeying, or you know, I've known people. You know, they go off to the jungle in Peru and they do like ayahuasca for a couple of weeks and they come back, and they're literally like the evidence of their life has been laid out in front of them and they don't know how to put it into any kind of context that's useful. Yeah. Um, so there's some work to be done, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got to be really careful with this, uh, you, know, w- you know, whether you go shamanic journeying or whether you go and you work with a counsellor. I, I now work with a, an amazing woman called Mary and uh, she's done some inner child healing and a whole bunch of different stuff that, that I've done as well. And I've done it over the last couple of years. And it's hugely transformational for me as well. And um, and we do sort of, you know, monthly, weekly sort of sessions. And we, we do a whole bunch of uh, crazy sort of subconscious reprogramming and a whole bunch of stuff. It's, mm. it's, it's wild because... You know, like life is stressful, and you, mm. you don't, you don't. You, I don't think you're reborn, as you as you sort of said, because yeah. <laughs> everyone regresses. You know, you can come out of these situations and be like, "Wow, life is amazing," and then like a week later, you're back into the same pattern yeah. that you were before, or whatever. It's just that now you you catch yourself doing it, and you kick yourself, <laughs> and then you 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 go into something else, right? Nick, I'm, you, I'm you curious. I, w- I just wanted to ask quickly, like um, at at the age of 40, what was it that um, that sort of let you know that that you needed to go and do some of this work? Because it's it seems like, you know, it's such a, a hard step to take is that is that like realization that you need to seek out um, some type of of therapy or help. Yeah. Um, what What was it for you? Like, how did that How did that happen? So I've always been really good at you know I've always had a ton of girlfriends and and, and uh, you know me, um, sort of you know uh, non sexual girlfriends um, <laughs> that that I've sort of lent on and I, a really good friend of mine Jen uh, like she was like 28 29 amazing amazing beautiful individual um with the soul of like a 140 year old like shamanic woman it was crazy right her energy was just so awesome and she was like you know she was always so guiding and uh every time that i've gone to try like inner child healing or emdr or just therapy it's been it's been because someone said like nick are you just tired (laughs) (laughs) are you just tired of of going in this manic circle of always trying to cope or whatever and and it gets me thinking uh, you know and and one of my superpowers is the ability to think long deep and hard about almost everything right and uh, Mm. that's also one of the things that's the most challenging about me as well um so yeah it's always the people that sort of point me in the direction and say maybe take a look at this you know read about it go into it and uh you know that first therapist was was amazing and then from there it was just opening doors uh, in a lot of different directions just to see uh, what there was out there because uh i realized that there was so much human potential out in the world that is not being realized and um Mm. You know, I, I literally have gone from the, the guy that would get in trouble for sharing how he thinks about the world, working for companies, to the guy that gets hired by companies to share how he thinks about the world because it's divergent and different and it's not the yes-man attitude that you get yeah. from ad agencies, management consultancies, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. <laughs> it, but you, but the, I couldn't have delivered the work that I deliver today in the same way when I was 35, Mm, yeah. I was I was too manic. I was too coping uh, in so many different ways, mm. you know. And uh, it's it's kind of interesting, right? 
Mm-hmm. I, you've mentioned a number of times throughout the conversation the the use of uh, you know psychedelics for yeah. for forms of therapy, um, and I'm I. I, I'm a, I'm a massive advocate for the use of psychedelics in a, in a very like controlled, uh, manner to, in order to work through whether it be past trauma or, or, you know, current trauma or whatever it is that you're dealing with. Um, and, and we've been seeing a lot more of, uh, especially in, in the news, a lot more, um, uh, evidence that is coming forward of of the the positive benefits behind things like psilocybin used for treatment of depression or yep. ketamine or you know um MDMA for 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 treating PTSD what are your what are you, what are what are you hearing what are your thoughts on on the use of psychedelics like do you do you see psychedelics as as a as like the new frontier when it comes to when it comes to medicine like have you had have you had much experience in the use of psychedelics um, for for your own personal healing? So I so I think it's a forgotten frontier that's suddenly being packaged up as something new and exciting and able mm. to be listed on the stock market, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Plant, yeah. Plant, plant medicine <clears throat> is thousands and thousands of years old, and it's been used in indigenous cultures for thousands and thousands of years. Why? To connect with their, to connect deeply with their ancestors, to connect deeply with Mother Earth, and, and to go further within themselves to explore. It was a beautiful thing. Um, why was it? Why was it shut down? It was shut down because you know that's savagery, right? Oh, you know, we get to the the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties. You know, big pharmaceutical companies. Of course, you can t- trust us because you know the you know the Prozac is good or mm-hmm. or, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and now we're sort of realizing it's like oh, you know, all of this like natural stuff and even even more uh, synthesized stuff like you know uh, ketamine or, or MDMA mm-hmm. or you know or whatever um, can actually have a really positive effect. I mean, it all got shut sh- shut down in the sixties because it made people free thinkers. Go figure how free thinking has uh, shaped the world. But like, you know, you can only free think within this Overton window in, inside this box, <laughs> yeah. right? So, so you know, I'm thinking about that. I mean, my own personal experience, I, I talk about things abstractly, right? So, you know, there are people out there that I know that have uh, studied it. And I've studied psychedelics a lot. So the first guy I came across is a guy called Dr. James Fardiman. Uh, down in Silicon Valley. And he did a, a bunch of experiments using mescaline and set and setting and problem solving with architects and engineers and mathematicians and whatever. And he found that, you know, psychedelics, it connected more, more, more thought centers in the brain and it brought more ideas together, more divergent thinking and more creative solutions. Ooh. And there's lots of research trying to prove or disprove that uh, up until very recently. And it's, that's going to continue, right? But it has been found that you know things like LSD, psilocybin, whatever they do connect lots of different areas. Things like MDMA, um, they allow people to basically be counselled through deep, deep, you know, trauma that they couldn't because of you know the flush of serotonin and and, and stuff like that. Right? Um, there's there's a great book called What the What the Dormouse Saw um, by John Markoff, and it sort of talks about the use of psychedelics in in the context of the modern world and the modern economy and innovation. So all of the best computer scientists in the world were in like Princeton and on the East Coast of the United States. Um, but in the late 60s, there was a shift 
the creativity and the wild ideas um, down in now is what is known as Silicon Valley in Stanford just exploded. And why? Because everyone tripped out, man. Everyone mm-hmm. blew their own minds. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can even go back, I think, to the 50s. Uh, Sir Francis Crick, who was one of the, the people that discovered uh, DNA and defined it, he imagined the double helix whilst he was like, tripping balls on LSD, describing it to his wife. <laughs> right? no way, this really? is very, very well documented. And it's like, okay, there's something really interesting here. Maybe we go back to the idea of simulation. There are multiple layers to our world. And we as humans cannot perceptually understand them all. So in, in, in any, any average second, bit, bits of information per second, about 40 bits of information per second, I consciously know about. 40 million bits per second subconsciously um, get understood by me and my brain, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine if you can unlock the potential of that subconscious uh, sensory system, mm. right? And this comes back to EMDR. It comes back to things that I do like Psych K and whatever. It's like, it's wild, you know, Ooh, it, it's, yeah. you know, the, the doors of perception, you know, doors to the universe and whatever. I've, I've, I've had friends that have done DMT ayahuasca and, you know, they, they breathe in and they're, they're an atom and they breathe out and, and they've been blown to every single corner of the universe. Mm. And once you perceptually understand those kinds of things, it's super interesting. I mean, what I do now, you know, it's nothing to do with psychedelics or drugs or anything like that. I do, I do a lot of breath work, right? And if you if you if you're a practicing uh, yoga um, person, uh, then then you know a lot about breath work. I do something called um, Groff breath work, which is like three hours tribal drums assisted sort of uh, breath work, and it, and it's deeper, harder, faster, and and you, you get a deeper sense of empathy for the world than you can through psychedelic experiences. Is that the type I, that's supposed to elicit a sort of psychedelic yeah. experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's wild. It's you know, I I I did it um, with a group that I that I I've worked with in 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 Vancouver, and at the end, the the sense of empathy. I I literally felt the gratitude of a thousand generations of of thinkers and ancestors that, that came before me. Ooh. It was it was it's wild. It sounds a bit hokey if That's you're crazy. into this, but it, it's wild. Um, and and that, that, that deeper sense of gratitude and empathy can only really do positive things in the world, right? Mm. I mean, a psychedelic experience, like if anybody who's had a psychedelic experience can relate to the idea that, that when you are, that it allows you to, it allows you to see the world through a different lens. And like when you look at something through a new, when, when you look at something through a new lens, you realize you you realize how 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 narrow of a field you are perceiving the world through yeah. all of the, all of the time and just gives you that whether it's a whether it's something that's going to be something that you go back to regularly or something that you know you try and then you go oh yeah that's enough that's <laughs> enough for me or that was an interesting experience and that's that yeah. it gives you it it just that knowledge that there is another lens to look through is enough to change the the path that someone's brain and psychology are going to go down for right. the rest of their life i think mm. um when yeah. we i was watching this um i was watching uh do you guys know vsauce on youtube yeah yep. yep. um 
he did a he did a YouTube original show called Mind. Uh, oh yeah, when he Mind. When he went, what the um, it was like Mind. It's not Mind. I want to say Mind Freak, but it's not Mind, mind Trip. Yeah, mind Freak. He's a he's a he's a magician. <laughs> he's right? Chris Angel. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was Mind Mind something. I can't remember the name of the show now. And he and he does this. Mind he does field. a uh, Mind field. That's he it. does a um, he did an episode where he actually does a. Uh, uh, ayahuasca like t- takes, ceremony. takes an ayahuasca ceremony in Peru. So it's not like lab based. He goes yeah. down to Peru. Um, he does all these like pre, he takes a lot of like brain scans and um, uh, uh, e- EKGs or whatever the brain, like brainwave tests are. Um, does those in the US, goes down to Peru, has this sort of like uh, sort of mobile testing thing, goes down with a, with a, uh, with a physician um, and researcher does the ayahuasca ceremony takes the t- does the same test during the ceremony and then post uh, ceremony and he does the ceremony I think three days in a row and they they saw this pretty wild um, pretty one of the conclusions that they came out with from the brain wave uh, from the uh, brain scans that he did were that this part of the brain I believe it was like the part of the brain that uh, basically like allows you to to have thoughts about yourself. Um, and talk to yourself that that pre pre ayahuasca those pathways were kind of like this broken maze and that there was all these like missing links in those pathways and then and then basically the ayahuasca took those and like scrambled them up like highlights like makes them light up light up light up light up light up and then and then after it's done that activity goes way, way down, almost non-existent, and then reshapes itself into fully connected lines. Mm. Where and and it's and it was basically going. This is why, this is why they think when you have a psychedelic experience, you feel so clear about you and yourself afterwards. Right. Like in that mm-hmm. integration period, it totally blew my mind. And obviously, they go into it. In a, in a deeper yeah. way and explain it better, but it was really, really mind- fascinating from like the, like actually what's happening at the level of the brain when yeah. you have a psychedelic experience. I mean, the, the brain's just trying to protect us, right? So like if there's trauma, like it, imagine if you were reliving a traumatic experience every day of your life, you'd, you'd be in pieces and, or something worse, right? So you'd, it'd just be a bad, 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 bad time. And some people do. Right. And this is why yeah. some people have to self medicate and whatever. Right. Um, but this is it. Um, so your brain, I think, you know, I, I propose the, the brain just breaks those connections. It, it broke the connection between me and the trauma of my, mm. of my Ooh. sister, right. Uh, passing away. And uh, when you reconnect it, that's when you can realize that it's okay and you can frame it and you can heal it and then you can move forward. Right. Mm-hmm. Nick, I'd, yeah. uh, I'd I'd love to know I'd love to know in the in the medical world from a futurist standpoint, what sort of uh, what sort of what sort of things what sort of things are you drawn to or are you thinking about in terms of whether it's like the way that healthcare might look in the future or the way that like medical technology might look in the future? Is there anything mm-hmm. that like springs to mind? <clears throat> There's a super interesting uh, piece of work happening on. Uh, happening now like on rats which is like mapping the connectome of rats and they've done it on a fruit fly and the connectome is like what people sort of think 
is, uh, you know, the structure of our consciousness. If we can structure and digitize the idea of our consciousness and download it, then we can live forever. This idea of longevity mm. and whatever. So there's lots of really interesting stuff happening <laughs> around that. And uh, if we can unlock that, then it'd be interesting. I mean, if you think about it, uh, 20, what was it, 20 years ago, uh, the genome cost a hundred million dollars right. to sequence a single genome, and it took, you know, a couple of decades to get there. And uh, and now you can you can you can sequence a genome for under a thousand bucks, and Ooh. you can do you know billions of them in, in a year. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so so if you think about that, and we jump forward to say uh, twenty forty. And sure, will we be able to download our consciousness? Yes. Will we be able to load it up into machinery so that we can live forever? Uh, a certain version of ourselves, potentially. Mm. Uh, as, as a futurist, I, I kind of dig that kind of stuff. <laughs> that uh, sounds like a fucking nightmare to me. That sounds that <laughs> sounds mirror. so it's, terrifying it's to black me. Mirror. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, absolutely. Yeah, but it, it, instead of being sort of stuck in this body, you're just like hanging out thinking about stuff, right? Oh, my God. I, I'm so done with thinking. I, <laughs> check, please. We've had this debate um, over the course of the last five years in this podcast, um, yeah. whether or not we'd want to live forever or not. And, and uh, so Jer has cystic fibrosis. And yeah. when he was born, he, he the doctor said that he would live to be about 30 years old. And so um, I've for context, thought, like, for context, I'm 33 now. Right. And, uh, and these it. glasses that I'm wearing, yeah. I didn't have to wear those until last week so everything was good now my eyesight's starting to go like i'm good okay so, like it's so, all I, we don't need to go forever i've always like i love science fiction and uh and the idea of living for, forever or at least a really long time is yeah. is really like i romanticize it because i'm like i want to see what's in the future i want right. to see where we go mm. um but we've had this conversation of like you know what is like an adequate lifespan? Like, what would you be happy with? And and uh, I'm curious, if, from your perspective, thinking about the future all the time, like, what do you think about death? <laughs> I'm not scared mm. of death. Um, I, you know what? Um, I've got a, I've got a hugely unpopular opinion uh, amongst my family. Um, I don't know why I can't just press a button at the age of seventy um, when I'm still looking half decent. <laughs> probably got some money in the bank to give to the family and uh, no one has to uh, wipe my ass when I go to the toilet and I can just go this is who I am see you later click you know <laughs> yeah, it's and, like uh, it's like the scene from midsummer you know it's like you reach that age we're not we don't want to see you get too old jump off the cliff there you well, go. That, that, that's it or it's like logan's run at the age of 30 you know ooh, the, the, ooh. the dot on your hand and then you you know you have to go um yeah to the place and uh, <laughs> anyway um <clears throat> yeah i you know what the, the 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 people that are desperately wanting to live i want to be 150 it's like you're gonna you're gonna really be in a bad way. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, I, I I don't crave that. I, I crave growing up with my kid. I hope that, you know, if you're like 75 today, it's like you were 65 um in, yeah. in sort of the seventies mm -hmm. and eighties, right? right? So you're rocking. So I'm probably gonna shift my uh my 70 years old to something like maybe 80, but like, you know, 80, 80, things are going to be breaking down pretty significantly. <laughs> 80, 80, right? Um, so, so that's what I, yeah, that, that's what I think. 
you know what the the people the pill poppers and the the people that that get all sorts of infusions and treatments uh very famous people like Ray Kurzweil that you know mm-hmm. sort of talk about living forever and and uh, the symbiosis of biology and technology and and how we're going to be integrated and all that it's all good but like wow it's it it's sort of that egomaniac crazy multi-billionaire Howard mm-hmm. Hughes Silicon Valley kind of thing of like, I want to live forever. Mm. You know, I want to invest in companies that solve death. And yeah. it's like, 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 and death is a disease and fuck man. Like how about, <laughs> how, how about the cycle of life and how about the idea that maybe we actually, uh, we get reincarnated. Mm-hmm. I like thinking about mm-hmm. that. I like, I, I saw my favorite movie. My brother and I, uh, watch when we were like five years old it was called fluke and it was right. about this uh this uh young family and the dad dies in a car accident and he's reincarnated as the new family dog and it's like he's trying to communicate to the family like i am uh, i'm i used to be the dead but like that ever since i was like five years old and watched that movie I've always thought about reincarnation. I'm like, man, it would well, be pretty cool. <laughs> maybe that's why. Maybe that's why my dog keeps humping my leg, just not trying to assert dominance, being like, "I'm your father. Just listen to me." <laughs> well, you know, what's really what's really interesting is that when we're talking about the topic of like epigenetics and that, like, that sort of is a, it sort of is this. I mean, not as like reincarnation and car- karma and reincarnation, especially from the from the um from the Hindu philosophy is that there is there is like karma is often misunderstood as as um uh you know if you do good things good things will come if you do bad things bad things will come that's it's not it's not it's it's more so it's more so that there is something that is preventing you from fully dying mm-hmm. and that you will then because there is something to resolve yeah. your karma continues and so that you will be reincarnated to resolve the karma and it's almost like this idea of epigenetics kind of jive like epigenetics and 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 um um intergenerational trauma kind of like it kind of jives with that with that philosophy of karma and reincarnation in the way that that you are sort of going into and and living on through these the the generations of your of your family and that the things that have the things that were traumatizing for you are going to be passed on in some way to the generations that come after you, which is kind of a a trippy thought. Mm. Yeah. I spend a lot of my life thinking about this stuff. I was literally thinking, (laughs) I was was literally thinking about um, being reborn and stuff like just earlier, like, you know, what would it be like being reincarnated? I was just laying there. It was like, but what, and then, you know, what if I'm reincarnated and I'm in like somewhere like India? Right, um, born to an Indian family, that you know, very very opposite to where I am right now. And you know, I've been reading a lot about a lot of the the terrible news from from India Ooh. right now. And it's like, yeah. how can you? Yeah, <laughs> like there, there's a lot of people in the world that are not having a good time, right? And like recognizing the privileged situation that we all live in, and yeah, uh, yeah big time. Yeah, remind reminding ourselves of that is super super important. Ooh. Oh yeah. Well, Nick, man, I gotta say you've got a you got a pretty fucking interesting job, and it's uh, it's it's a an absolute uh, pleasure to sit down and and uh, pick your brain about the work that you do, yeah. uh, the work of a futurist, and and just how you view the world and and what's to come. Um, 
I want to say thank you for for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down with us and yeah. and give us a little bit of insight into how your brain works because it's quite fascinating. Yeah, thanks very much. I, I I've lived with my brain my entire life and I'm still trying to tame it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, um, these conversations are super important to me so thanks very much for having me on the show as well and i'm i'm glad we got connected and uh um, we need to do a part two i i believe so yes because you have to realize that we've only just really tapped into one side of what i do the other side is you know the the the, the onslaught of our, our technological futures that are going to be wrought upon us and yeah. some of the some of the ethics around machine learning and stuff mm. like that we should get oh, into that man. oh Dude, fuck we, yeah we've been we just watched the, a video of having... that that monkey playing pong with his fucking head yeah that's fucking mm. crazy. that shit was that shit was making... also we've been having debates on uh, whether AI is actually a threat to the future of humanity or not and uh, mm-hmm. and I would mm-hmm. love to hear your thoughts on that we should yeah, do a part yeah. two well, let, 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 let's, let, let's plan let's plan for that one I'm not going to give you any, any today. absolutely uh, well thanks that. a lot Nick this, this really does uh, mean a lot man thanks yeah, yeah, thank cheers you. That is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, make sure that you share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy Podcast is a Snack Labs production. It is produced by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever, and Lauren Sankey. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend Rich O'Coin. And Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis. That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.